I'm Mariangela Abeo, and this is the Face to Faces podcast, a conversation series that provides a platform focusing on the LGBTQ plus and POC communities and their allies in the areas of activism, politics, mental health, arts and entertainment, and community, where we discuss the human experience in our ever-changing world. The goal of this space is to remind you that while you may have moments where you feel isolated or alone, there is always an incredible community of people here that is safe. We all connect to people at our deepest pains and our greatest joys. And in this space, we're here for those moments and everything in between. I'm so glad you're here. Take a seat next to me. It's always open. Now, let's lean in. Okay, my guest today is friend and I consider family member Scott Lawrence Kirschenbaum. He's a small business consultant, a nonprofit strategist and producer. He's currently researching the somatic experience of climate grief and climate trauma. His recent projects have focused on Alzheimer's disease, Haiti, Sudanese American refugees, the Cherokee tribe, all chemical medicine, sensory deprivation flotation tanks, eco-village culture, the nuclear disaster in Chernobyl, and maternal health. He's been featured in the New York Times, San Francisco Chronicle, Huffington Post, on PBS's Emmy Award-winning Independent Lens and ABC World News. He holds a BA in literature from Yale, where he was awarded the Sudler Prize for his hip-hop musicals with my brother, James Vincent Derue, entitled Kowtow Rhapsody and Symphonies Amiss. Scott, I'm so happy to have you here. This is amazing to get to talk to you with a photo of your brother right behind your shoulder. I, know, your shoulder. Right? Amazing. I, I have him everywhere we go for this uh, project podcast movement. He just seems to keep popping his head in at these moments where I'm just like, I didn't know you were there. I should have known better. Yes. And, Do you have uh, those times with Jimmy? Do you feel like, and I know you call him James. I call him Jimmy. He yeah. tried tirelessly to get me to call him James his whole fucking life. And I kept being that bitchy oldest sister and refusing. I was the only one in the family that called him Jimmy, by the way. <laughs> well, what I say to all the Jimmys that I meet in the world is I just, whenever they introduce themselves as Jimmy, I say, I never met a Jimmy that I didn't like. Oh, so, I love that. And, you know, as we both know, we share a, a tattoo among your many, many tattoos. We, My only tattoo and one of your tattoos, we both have James's ashes tattooed in our ankle. So yeah. uh, this is it was pretty... the first anniversary of his death. Yeah. And we uh, wanted to get a tattoo that he had. And, you know, he had a lot of tattoos that, and he was such a kind of deep thinker in so many ways. And he had extensive answers for things that should sometimes have been very short answers. <laughs> and so I remember asking him about that tattoo on his ankle saying, you know, those three lines on your ankle, what does it mean? Thinking it was going to, and he just kind of looked at me and he was like, when I bend my foot, that's the lines that it makes. And I thought you're an asshole. Like, <laughs> because it hurts so bad. Absolutely. And I, I don't know if you ever learned, but that actually is the I Ching uh, notation for the creative spirit, creative way. 
I found that out. So how did I not know that? Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. I remember thinking, uh, I immediately thought, and I knew he would kill me for this, this, uh, analogy. But when I was getting the tattoo, I immediately felt like my Achilles was being cut into like in the pet cemetery movie where the kid like cuts from under the bed. Cause Jimmy was so frightened of scary movies and I used to torture him with them. And so that's immediately what I thought as I was like, I'm reliving the scary movie that he hated. <laughs> well, I, I think I should share with your guests, you know, cause I was born Jewish and I, you know, wasn't supposed to get a tattoo. I'm not supposed to ever, but my feeling was like, insofar as I believe in a higher power, I want to carry James with me for the rest of my life. And I love that when I was positioned on the table, you put a little Superman figurine in front of me so mm-hmm. that I could hold it when I was like in the most excruciating pain of my life. Well, uh, and, and mentally uh, you were too, cause you were like, it was a struggle. I remember. Yeah. And you know, it was so beautiful that you presented all of us who were friends with James with, you know, the, canisters of or little cans of James's ashes with the superhero figures. And we all have been carrying those ashes with us for a long, long time. So and there's a, yeah. I remember because you all traveled and I was coming from, well, I mean, let's back up. Let's talk about the fact that, yes. you know, my brother, so it was 13 years ago in June. Hmm. Um, I did not know you. I was overseas at the time that it happened. And I remember being told that they were going to wait for me to come home and to stay stick out the nine days that I was supposed to be in Israel. And that there was a group of friends from New York road tripping it across the US to come to my brother's memorial. And I remember thinking either I'm gonna totally hate them all or I'm gonna totally love them. And either way, I was just so excited that everyone, you all made that effort to come so far. Mm-hmm. Um, did you know what you were coming to that day? I I feel like, you know, I've said to people time and again that James was the most, represents, he's the most talented artist I ever have had the chance to work with. You know, he was the classic triple threat that he played music like a badass and he was an amazing dancer and he was one of the best actors at Yale. I mean, and we went to college at Yale, so there were a lot of incredibly talented people. He also had written out and told a number of us over the years that he always dreamt of having this huge party, this huge bash gathering, and then he wouldn't be there. He was going to put it all together and then he wouldn't show up. So we all thought this was the great irony of James's decision, sadly, you know, to end his life, mm-hmm. is that he made that happen. And what I'm just amazed by is still to this day, I've never seen that kind of uh, convergence among, you know, we've never had like a reunion of all of these classmates who all love James so much. And, you know, it was obviously sad, but it was also just remarkably enlivening to just hug it out with these unbelievable people who all just like thrived in James's presence. And I think we can certainly say that he's the biggest kicking up the butt that we've ever had in terms of needing to continue. I mean, I was in LA at the time doing screenwriting. I mean, I, you know, bouncing all over, but after that happened, I'm like, I have to do cause driven work from this point forward because James wouldn't want it any other way. Like I cannot, I cannot sell out. I have to throw it down. I have to give my all to this stuff. And, you know, it's because your brother just looked us in the eye time and again and said, is that, is that the motherfucking truth that you want to bring to this world? Because you better bring it. 
You know, you don't get any guarantees in this lifetime. You know, you don't get any guarantees when you're on the stage, when you're taking the mic, you better bring it. Like, cause right. this, this is soul, you know, and that's, that's, that is JVD to the max. Well, and that memorial was so, you know, I was coming straight from overseas and I didn't know what I was expecting. And honestly, my family was all so broken and I'm this, I'm not the matriarch, but I'm definitely the, the oldest child in this family that is this earth sign Capricorn organizer, put your emotions to the side, handle your shit. So when I got there, nothing had been done. 350 people were expected, no service. No, like there was no like process of we're going to do readings, whatever. His ashes were in a corner. I don't know how, if you've heard the story about how you all came to have those small little ashes, but Maddie was part of that decision. She was 11. And I was told by my aunts, all everybody all kind of came to me when I walked up, just, you know, when you see somebody for the first time after something tragic happens, you just kind of crumble. So my sister, my dad was stoic and kind of drugged and my aunts and, and they all kind of looked at me and they said, his ashes are in the basement and nobody's touched them. And I was like, lovely. So I was like, I can do this. And my grandmother, uh, my dad's mom, had just buried her husband a few few about a year before so she said honey i've just dealt with your grandfather's ashes i can help you mm-hmm. i had never done that before but i was prepared and um so i go downstairs and she's like we should get a few spoons and i was like good god and um we go downstairs and she said we're gonna find these i have these little um these little com- things do you think your parents would want like two separate because my parents are divorced and uh, my mother was not there and um I said, you know, I would really like to give some to his friends that are coming from so far. Jimmy doesn't want to be on a fucking mantle somewhere. He wants to be spread all over the world. Mm. And so I'm I'm opening this box and realizing what I'm looking at. And then all of a sudden I hear Madison at 11, a little 11 year old coming down the stairs, perky as can be trying to, she was also trying to overcompensate for me. She knew it was going to be a really hard day and she was very intuitive and she looked at me and she's, she said, what are you doing? And I said, you know what? I'm actually not prepared to have this conversation with you right now. And she looked at me straight in the eye and she said, well, that's tough. You're going to have to tell me because I want to help you. And I was like, okay, are you ready to hear this? I said, this is your uncle. And she looked in the bag. She goes, he's really chunky. (laughs) And I was like, yeah and you know what he would say to that not even fire could break me down because he was healthy in his bones and you know and and it gave me a whole different perspective and maddie goes cool i want to help you can i can i find some some superhero i saw some superhero stickers in one of his boxes can i put them on the top and i was like absolutely and that's how i survived that moment was with this 11 year old angel who was just like that's him. He's he's chunky. Let's do it. And it was a lovely way. And Jimmy would have handled it the same fucking way. He would have definitely. He would have taken- been a look, like, look at how strong their bones were. Yeah. So um, then I was so excited to give it, give them to you all that day and to hear people singing around the fire and um, wearing superhero name tags. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember um, speaking in front of that group hardly remember it. Um, and I remember putting on Facebook right before 
that I was about to speak in front of people and I needed some strength sent to me. And my brother had given me this superhero as a gift the year before. And I didn't know anything about her. Who is the Scarlet Witch? Help me. And I got a response right before I stood up there in front of everybody that said that Scarlet Witch is arguably one of the most powerful superheroes in the Marvel universe. And your brother had to have really have a lot of respect for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's funny because that gave me so much strength. But then the memorial for my mom, my mom's memorial, or it was a funeral in a Catholic church. Did you go to that with me? I forget. Uh, I don't. I did not. I did not. I remember. I, I know a few of his friends did. I don't remember yeah, who was there. With me. Um, but I was dreading going, and I was the only family member or the only child that went. And um, it was everything. It was the antithesis of what he would have wanted. His face was under Christ the cross. Everybody has had sunglasses on and were wailing. I I told somebody later that day that I would have rather um, poked my eyes out with a uh, pencil than be there. It was just, it was painful. It was horrible. Somebody that didn't know how to speak Italian saying Ave Maria. Like it was so bad. And I remember at one point, and and I'm not joking about this, seeing like a blur to my side. And I want to say it was a vision of him. And it was somebody giggling in a pew laughing because it was all, if you were able to step away from it, it was very comical the way that it was the pomp and circumstance and drama of it all. And I also remember making my tongue bleed because I bit it so hard so that I didn't stand up and say something horrible. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think, you know, the nice thing about James is he could be comfortable anywhere, you know, whether it was burning man or a homeless community or anywhere in the world. I mean, just Siberia. Um, You know, I I just, I'm reminded of this visual image of James with a Frisbee. And, you know, he like, I'd like to die in a blaze of glory with a Frisbee in my hand. Like just Mm -hmm. every, there is some levity and, you know, and also he's a shapeshifter. Like he's categorically that. So I could see him figuring out how to find a a rhythm and a groove, even in the Catholic service. And I also just since you mentioned the, the presentation you gave it at his funeral, that was for all intent. That was like the first time I witnessed you in public. Really? Yeah. That's the pretty much my introduction to you. And I'm just now flashing back and realizing that I was positioned kind of in that like spot that J- when James and I always went to concerts, you know, cause back in the day we connected uh, through hip hop and doing hip hop musicals. And, you know, I, he, we always talked about being a little bit on the left side of the audience, a handful of rows, like three to five rows back. So you're a little bit out of the central view, but you get that like specific angle. And I had that when I was witnessing you. And I also had that when I was at Raw Science first show when he opened for KRS-One. And it was the exact same position. I remember like exactly how James walked us through the audience to get to that spot. So maybe, maybe there's something there. Uh, yeah, you know. I love that. Do you have Jimmy moments in your life? I know I have a lot of people that tell me through faces of fortitude in my work. Um, I get a lot of your brother would be very proud. And you know, I, what I always say to that is, Oh, he's very present. He is, he's more present now than he was when he was alive because his mind is no longer hindering him from being able to help and be available 
in ways that, that it was with mental illness. And I feel like he makes himself, I'll even say like, what do I, what should I do in this situation? I wish my brother would like send me a sign and I will get moments that I'm just like, wow, do you get those? Yeah. I mean, I think for your community, what I would share uh, for the faces of fortitude community that I've known a number of people who have struggled with mental health challenges. Uh, I have, you know, for throughout my life, dealt with uh, depression and bipolar disorder and all sorts of challenges. And what James, it's, I don't think it's just that James would be proud of you. He was such a singular figure that he would just revel in the fact that you have created a movement around perseverance and around saying, no matter how difficult it gets, no matter how much my heart aches, no matter how fucked up the world becomes, I got to make it another day. I got to find another way to do it. And so like when I have my James moments, it's oh, people say to me, like, how can you be in that setting? It's so depressing. How can you think about this or do that? It's because like I, James made me comfortable in those environments and having those conversations. He never looked away. He, it, so it's not just about being proud. It's that like he would thrive in your community. He would love up on your community. And the fact that it, you, we are celebrating the fact that we are still here and that we're figuring our shit out. I mean, and that you are this catalyst for, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And, and I think that I, my James moments are all around the fact that, yes, th- like the world is has a James like there are the the multitudes of conflict a conflict and like struggles and everything and still there's poetry in all of it in right. all of it you know in the even in the suicidal ideation and one thing you know when you talk about James moments the number one vow that I made for your brother is that every single time I met anyone who said that they were considering suicide or have considered suicide or know someone who has i've just asked hey if there's ever a chance to take a walk with that person please please do me that honor because that's where james would want me to be and i actually just want to also mention that you and i you know after all the memorial service what where we really cemented our friendship was the american foundation for suicide prevention out of the darkness walk, the 20 mile walk throughout Seattle, jamming that out to- That was incredible. That yeah. was, so we did the out of the darkness overnight walk. It was 20, no, it was, yeah, it was 20 miles and it was all around Seattle overnight. This is from somebody that was, I was probably 70 pounds heavier. I was not a walker. I had not trained for this, but I, it was like f- within four days of the one year anniversary. Mm-hmm. So I felt like we had to do it. We, it was me, you, my sister, and my dad's then wife, Sharon. And, you know, we turned it into such a Jimmy memorial. We did not follow the way that they wanted us to follow. I, you know that there's still a video of that that exists that I took. That is amazing that I took with like a camcorder. And um, I remember us having snacks, stopping at a store and getting snacks in our bags to give to all the homeless people that we met. We made sure and asked their names and talked with all of them. We did exactly what Jimmy would have done on this walk. Yeah. And do you remember? Last. <laughs> yes. And uh, do you remember where it all ended? 
you know, the, the, the rock and roll memorial, the rock and, was it the rock and roll museum? What's it? The, yes. The, 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 mo- the Mopop, but yes, yeah. the EMP yeah. back then. Yeah. yeah. And I remember, you know, it's like sunrise, it's basically dawn and they gave us those like silver, you know, sleep jack or whatever moon, cushions. Moon, moon blankets. Yeah. To like warm ourselves up. And I remember that the gentleman who gave the closing remarks started by telling us that he had attempted suicide basically four times in his past and just hearing him and realizing like that is a man who demands my respect. That is a man who is walking the righteous path, even if he struggled so much and, and, you know, because he struggled so much, you know, and it's, you know, it was a, I, and I vividly remember you and at the walk and everything saying at times, like, I don't know how the hell I'm going to finish this thing, but you absolutely made, you know, like that's, yes. It was, it was yeah. a, a very magical experience with lots of moments that were really special. And, you know, I remember being connected to the homeless pop- population that night for the first time ever. Um, I was not. I was definitely very shallow and very not um, understanding when it came to the homeless population growing up. And I remember when I, when Maddie was young and my brother and I were out somewhere on the Hill um, walking past a homeless person and them asking me if they, I had any money and I just said, no, sorry. And I kept walking and he looked at me and I will never forget it. And he said, you need to really try to see them, like see them. And I felt horrible. But I still was like, man, you're just judging me left and right, bro. Like I was just like, I see them. I talk to them. And then he died. And they say that oftentimes with siblings or with family members, they will transfer empathy and they will transfer feelings to someone because I have a connection to homeless people now that I never have before. And I swear it's from my brother. Um, and this is a story I wanted to tell you earlier, and I decided I want to say it on my on on recording. But I was, you know, I managed the apartment buildings, and we live here in Belltown. And I, um, it was early; it was like eight a.m. And I heard somebody in the alley messing with the trash. And you know, we're in a time where it's a revolution. We don't want cops called for everything. In fact, the cops are just racist pieces of shit right now. And so. I look down, I open my window and I look down and it's a black man in his mid twenties. Um, he had dug up my planter flowers and had put them in a box and was carrying them around and he was sobbing. And I was, and I see this white couple walking up the street and they're, and he, he starts to throw like cans, trash at them and he's sobbing, crying. And they immediately pull their phones out, clearly going to call the police. And I yell out the window, please don't call the police. I'm putting my shoes on. I'm coming out to handle it. And they just kind of looked at me and I went outside. And when I got out there, he was sitting on the corner holding these rooted flowers, sobbing like they were his babies. And I got so emotional because I saw Jimmy and I was like, he had moments where he sobbed like that where he cried and I, and it didn't make any sense why he was crying. And it's that totally helpless mental illness moment that I just wanted to help this man. And so I called Harborview. I found, cause I said, I don't want to call the police. They will not be kind to him. He needs kindness. Mm-hmm. And then I found out there's a company called health one and then called 911 and had to beg them 
to not send a police officer and just send an ambulance. And it took forever, but it happened. And then a woman came across the street as I was sweeping up dirt and putting the plants away. And she said, God, I'm sorry. He made such a mess. What a mess. Did you call the cops? And I looked at her and I said, these flowers were $6.99 at Lowe's. He was holding these like they were his dead babies. Mm -hmm. That is so much more important. And I felt my brother that day gave me so much strength to say, you have to help this guy. And we all need to just take a beat and wait a second and see how we can help somebody and have some humanity. And, you know, I think about my brother all the time when I'm dealing with houseless people. Yeah. Well, and also when you're describing that moment, I mean, I just see the, the, the beauty in that connection that he has with the plants. I mean, also I will say yesterday, on the corner, I found a bunch of succulents in a box and I just spent some time with those. Uh, but it, it's just, it's that your brother, like the, the path of someone who has these mental health challenges is such a rough one. And if you can find that uh, grace to be present when there's this weird development that most people would dismiss or walk away from or just end right away it's kind of like the principle of yes and and improv like right. that that was one of your brother's supernatural skills like he wasn't a superhero who you know ran for president or did this or whatever i know a lot of people from his youth probably wanted that he was a guy who went into the fucked up world scenarios and just said like all right let's dance let's mm. be here and let's like jam with this and and you know not there's just no d d dismin diminishing of the the feelings that you know that he was exchanging with people who are like he'd also off, often give them CDs. You know he carried mm -hmm. around two hundred burnt you know hip hop albums and was passing them along to this everyone. I mean like in his little mini studio he had those. So I I love I love that image. I mean I love that image of you there. I mean I just I also love seeing you right now with your brother behind you, just mm. kind of like encouraging you on to, to, to get out there in the world. And it's, well, and you know, I have yeah. people, I, I don't have a lot of haters. I don't have a lot of trolls. You know, I had, I've had a few people, uh, warn me and, and I, and I've had maybe one or two, which I think is brilliant for three years. And then, uh, a few, some family members that are distant and that are hateful and that are projecting, and, and they definitely feed at my insecurities around this, but then Jimmy will come through and make it so fucking evident yeah. that I am in the right place, that yeah. it's actually so great. I'm like, oh, remember, this is why you're doing this. I All I can say to your haters or any haters is just that you, you're, this is a, a tremendous success. I mean, I remember when we had lunch in San Francisco, when you first told me this idea, and I'm like, that would be amazing for Mar Angela to have a photo show around this or to have conversations people around this. And now I feel like this can evolve and is evolving into this juggernaut of human emotion, a pathos, where people are sharing the most challenging, raw feelings with one. I mean, it, it, you're 
space is a grief ritual. It is a walking, talking, breathing, feeling grief ritual. And after James passed, the way I got through all this was participating in grief rituals, specifically Saban Fusome's rituals, you know, may she rest in peace. Um, but I, what I gave to the grief altar were some of Jimmy's ashes. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and I had, you asked me when I see James, like I, was with James when I was being held by this woman with stage four cancer. Like she had me, she was grabbing me. I was behind her supporting her and she was just like writhing and weeping and spitting. And there was like music and drumming and everything. And I just like, I was crying as well. And I just had this feeling. I'm like, James is telling you to bounce with these emotions. James is telling you to just keep with this. And right afterwards, Sabanfu came up to me and asked me, invited me to bury everyone's grief. Uh, and it was just yeah. like stunning. And then the drummer came off up, up to me and invited me on a vision quest after that. Uh, so, you know, it, I think it's all about a willingness to say yes to the uncomfortable. Yes. And I think that there's so much shame around suicide and around mental illness that you see people that just aren't ready to talk about it. And I dove right in right away. You know, we've, I don't think we've ever, and and to anybody listening to this, Scott and I are friends, but we're not close in the way that we talk all the time. And we definitely did not discuss details around my brother's death ever. Like we really haven't had this in-depth discussion. So the fact that we're having this here for other people to listen to is kind of a big deal. Yeah. I also was going to say like, where's a pot? I mean, it does a podcast exist where two people are decompressing around the passing of their fallen, you know, for me, fallen brethren, for you, your actual brother, you know, and that, I mean, to unpack this, like I know in the months and day after this, like all of us were trying to figure out how the hell this happened. Like I flew to Atlanta. I went to the exact room where it, like the paint was still on the wall where he had been doing, spl- you know, whatever splatter paint and everything. Like we, none of the, and one of the just crazy parts of losing to someone to suicide that you realize this is like a li- major life lesson. You, you're never going to put all the pieces together and never make sense of it. You're never going to be able to tell the story fully. Right. And it's their story. And it's okay that it's a broken eulogy. And, and, you know, James was a guy who played this like small broken ukulele at the end of his life. Uh, and, and after the passing happened, I was fortunate enough to find Tom Brousseau's song, Broken Ukulele. I hope that you'll share that with your audience because I always think of that song with your family. And I've never heard it. it. It's a, yeah, it's an amazing song. Um, and I actually saw Broken Ukulele on the street yesterday. That's neither here nor there. But it's a lot of people just want to say this person had this issue or that issue or this went wrong or that went wrong. And I think that's diminishing their their plight. You know, the fact that they struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled and tried and tried and tried and tried and and desperately worked to make sense of this world. And, you know, for one reason or another, your brother had this idea that this mysterious vision of what the other side could be was what he was drawn to at the very end. And, you know, he wrote this massive, crazy manifesto of sorts as well. Um, And all these people, I mean, like we all have become better artists because of him. 
his oh, art. Definitely. His, definitely. You know, yeah. So. Um, I don't think we've ever talked about that day. Yeah. Oh, yeah, please. Yeah. I mean, my story is kind of known. If people have listened to my TED talk, that's how I open it. I was traveling. You know, I was, I like to say that that's the day that I shifted from aloof sister to I finally was brought back to earth of where I should have been, where I needed to be with him. And I was, I think that's the day that he transferred a lot to me. Um, I was traveling through his city. You know, we were, he was at a point where he was very paranoid. He was, you know, always sending me links to videos that were, you know, conspiracy theories and things. And so getting him on the phone was, it was, a you had to be in it for a little bit. And it was a long conversation. And I was definitely, I was a mom of a young, you know, of a tween and I was getting ready to go on a trip. And he emailed my sister and I, I just remember he emailed us and I was on my way to the airport and he told us he, how excited he was to come visit home, that his bags were packed. Um, and I remember my sister shooting me a text saying that was a oddly normal email from him. Yeah. And I was like, let's not <laughs> tempt fate. I'm getting on a plane. I'll see you on the other side. And then I had this extended layover in Atlanta and that's where um, I made a decision that I'm never going to be able to get back, which is, you know, my layover went from three hours to six hours. The friends that were traveling with me knew that my brother lived there and said, why don't you give him a call? Maybe he can come to the airport, have some coffee. And I looked them dead in the eyes and said, you know what? I'm going on vacation. I don't want to deal with this right now. It's a lot. He's a lot. I'll call him on the way home. And the fact that it happened within six hours of that uh, was something that it took years for me to get over. Um, now somebody that's been doing, doing enough work in the mental health space, I know that I would never, I might have prevented it by a day, but the problem was so much deeper than a phone call from me. Yeah, absolutely. But where were you? I was in San Francisco and I remember, you know, I was, pretty new with the cell phone at that time. And I saw a call from our mutual friend, uh, Katie Young. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just, I saw the number and I immediately knew that the shit went down. And mm -hmm. I remember I immediately knew before I even answered the phone. And I just started weeping before I even heard her speak. And she just said, Scott, it's James. And I just could tell because yeah, he was actually also supposed to come out to the Bay Area uh, to visit our friends, you know, Chris and Adam. And he was talking about gigs that he could play at the Panhandle and where we were going to do our all night hoodenannies and such. And it, it, everything in the world developed a, a crack then, everything, because I realized that you could lose the best artist you know. You could lose the person who you most admired performing on a stage. You could lose that person You could to the other side. You could lose that person. And it just did not ever make sense. You know, and I know after the, at the memorial that your grandma mentioned this one mental health issue that James had or might have had that the family always thought that he had, you know, if I may Mm -hmm. you know schizophrenia right. and you know i always thought you know maybe bipolar or this or that whatever but also it was just like the 
the intense energy you know that people have in their veins when they crave the great art and just in that like everything permanently changed in my life everything i also doubted my life for the first time in terms of whether it was the first time i was just like well if he went to the other side is that the direction that i should head as well because i i loved being on the stage and performing with him and truthfully i have been afraid of performing pretty much ever since then like i've mm-hmm. played only probably 10 shows since then i played with a number of different musicians but it's never been the same it's never been the same because he made me realize the ephemeral quality that you have to bring all of it to every single performance and i just i mean i know we're talking about where i was when when no, I, when we lost him. And, and you know i I went on this sort of like obsessive journey after he passed away of speaking to every single person he was connected to in Atlanta and his boss, uh, his girlfriend, you know, going out there, going all over, because I thought I would be able to put the pieces together. And I think all of us did. And all of us wanted to come up with our idea of who to eulogize James for the world. You know, I I still haven't been there. Yeah. Well, I want to, but I feel like it's going to happen when it's supposed to. Um, I, uh, I want to talk about the trauma that happens after, you know, I think that there's a lot of, we can all talk about the, the, my brother never did anything half-ass. And so the drama that was part of him taking his own life that day with the paint and in the, in the room, in the, the office and, um, jumping out the window, all of that. Um, that's that's all details that we can talk about separately. But I think the trauma, um, I know that I've never reacted to anything like that. And I've dealt with sexual assault, abusive family members. And I remember at that moment hearing my sister at the other end of the line and my world going like this and just focusing in on the carpet at my feet. And not be and everything being muddled and not being able to hear anything. And I heard Ryan get out of the shower. Maddie's talking to me and I can't hear her. And I remember thinking the world has stopped. I think the world stopped. And then for you know a week while I was there, the world didn't stop, but I had. And it was the strangest feeling. And now when I talk to people that are fresh in suicide loss, I make sure and tell them that fog that you're experiencing that total stillness is your mind protecting itself mm-hmm. because that is a trauma that nobody should have to experience. And I don't know if you experienced that, but I was very like, even listening to me talk at the Memorial, I was still like, yeah. I was well, I mean, and it's hard to feel your body again. It's mm-hmm. hard to feel that you believe you're present in the actual world. Because anyone you're associating with, you're hearing about their work life, their personal life, but you're thinking to yourself, my, my boy just committed suicide. Like, I just lost my guy to the, what am I supposed to, I don't even, like, in just seeing his physical presence and being like, do I, should, I'm, I'm doubting my, my, my reality, that my reality is even here anymore because of the significance of that loss. It took months and months and uh, and still trying to write his story or live out 
his story and then realizing there's just no possible way to do that. Um, did you ever doubt that he was dead, by the way? I asked that because I did. Uh, I don't, I don't think I, I, I don't think I doubted his passing. I think I, I, I it made me believe in, in this, like the other, the other side, the, you know, sort of Bardo, the, the, like the energetic landscape of the passing. I don't think I doubted he didn't pass. I think I just doubted that where he, I just didn't know where he'd show up anymore. Yeah. I was, I doubted it because, um, he was cremated before any of us got to see him. And that made me, I was, I was irate. I was so mad. I was so angry. And so I remember forcing my dad to let me read the, uh, police report because I wanted to, and the uh, autopsy report, and they were talking about his tattoos and that's when I knew. I was like, but before that, I thought he's faking his death. This is Jimmy. He's faking his death. He's not really dead. Like I went through that denial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it is frustrating that he was cremated so quickly. I know a lot of people wanted to attribute it to substance use, and I know that the examination didn't show any signs of that. There also are questions of what substances he had his hands on in the days leading up to that, based upon. I mean, I can tell you, I can yeah. tell you what it said. I mean, my yeah. whole family yeah. said that he was uh, high, and that's why he yeah. did it. And yeah. I was one. Of, I think my sister and I both said no, he wasn't. He was yeah. sober, and I'm gonna I'm yeah. gonna stand by that. And then when the toxicology report came back, he was sober. He had acid in his pocket. Yeah, and, and I know he bought a few nights prior. Um, you know, and also just to share, cause you mentioned that like beautiful anecdote of the homeless man with the plant in the days leading up, cause people probably don't know this up to his death. He would be taking his ukulele out. He was, you know, was working for AmeriCorps, taking his ukulele out to the school half an hour before school started and giving kids lessons on the ukulele. Like it was Jimmy bearded Jimmy with dreadlocks in the side of his beards and tattoos with all the buttons of the VCR and he was just doing these ukulele lessons every day for anyone who came out if anyone came out or just doing these little renditions for everyone and it's so it's it's this confluence of crazy different experiences that you can't ever reconcile and make sense of as one narrative it's just never going to be there and that's why when I went to Atlanta each person I spoke to had their own sense of that story. Um, and I know the folks who came out for his memorial, we all had our James. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the overwhelming, ineffable quality of someone's life that's abridged. And yeah, I don't think I ta- I haven't spoken to you since his, uh, the anniversary of his death in June, end of June. So I usually will spend the day going to some of his favorite places. And this year I took a big fat edible and I walked around the city with books in my backpack and my journal and, you know, walking shoes on. And I told myself I was going to go to his favorite, one of his favorite Ethiopian restaurants. And I was going to go to Cal Anderson Park and I was going to walk around on the hill, all of his favorite places. And I walked so much that I was exhausted and I called a Lyft to go home and I get in the car and it's this kind of, he's probably in his thirties, uh, Asian man. And, 
um, very nice, very chatty. And he, uh, as he started to talk, his radio was on and the song over the rainbow by Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name came, came on. And that's a song that my brother used to always sing to me on the ukulele. He knew because it, my favorite song or my favorite movie is wizard of Oz. Yeah. So he would sing that. I think it was played at his memorial as well. Um, I had not heard that song for almost a decade and it always reminds me of him. So as this man is talking and I'm somebody that does not cry in public very easily, I burst into tears in the back of this lift. And I was like, I am so sorry. I need to explain to you why I'm crying in the middle of your conversation. But my brother, it's the anniversary of his death. He took his own life today, 12, 13 years ago today. And um, this song was played at his memorial and it's really special to me. Um, so I'm sorry. And he pulled the car over. He turned around and he said, my mother took her own life and I've never talked about it because culturally we're not allowed to. And he started crying and he said, um, this is the first time I'm talking about it. And I was like, oh, I see you, brother. Like my brother was like, you have to talk to this guy. And those Jimmy moments, I'm just like, they're, they slap me in the face sometimes that I'm just overwhelmed but also so grateful that I'm open enough to feel them and see them. And I just feel like he's so ever present now, but those moments I just kind of am like in awe over. Yes. I mean, the time and time again, people, I mean, in doing suicidology research actually in Nashville after all of this and going to the conference and, Speaking to people, it, it dawned on me that you could walk into any coffee shop and ask people, how many of you attempted have attempted suicide during the course of your lives? And maybe some of the folks would raise their hands. And how many of you have known someone who has attempted suicide? And a number of people would raise their hands. And how many of you have known someone who have, has ended their lives? You know, it's just everyone, one way or another, has been touched by this. And yet it has been such an othered issue. And one thing that's been so challenging is when I've tried to pitch a suicide related film, this topic rarely ever shows up under the umbrella of social justice. It's not like you can go to people and say, let's do a project around suicide and they give it the same weight and merit as any number of other issues that exist in our culture. It is, you know, the elephant in the room and it sucks. It totally sucks because we, there are so many people like your driver that day who just would love nothing more than to have someone they can drink a glass of wine with and say, tell me about that person who you knew. And they'll always say they were one of my favorite people. They well, were just- and it is a social justice issue. I mean, yeah. we think that posting the suicide hotline is, is what we're going to do to help people. But, you know, our housing crisis, our economy, our the racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, like all of those things – Yes. create suicidal ideation, create yeah. mental illness, create struggle. And so we need, there's so many things to tackle rather than let's just spread, you know, suicide prevention tips. It's yeah. so much bigger than that. Absolutely. It, it really is. I mean, especially with the internet right now and online bullying and people just losing themselves because of the disconnect with our culture, their, the lack of culture the lack of comfort and family, the sense of family and community 
it's really unfortunate. It's probably why there's such a preponderance of suicide in the States versus other parts of the world as well. So, right. I, I have kind of a woo-woo question for you, but I just, as I'm becoming more witchier and woo-woo, that's how, the, that's how it goes. Um, do you think my brother was aware of what he was doing? Do you think it was, you know, or there's a lot of family members that say it was drug-induced and that he was in a state of unconsciousness and that it was a mistake and that he didn't really take his life and um, do you think it was premeditated? Do you think he knew? Uh, I think he knew. I do think he knew. I have had, uh, you know, psychedelic journeys with him that were some of the most disturbing experiences of my life. That made me wonder whether he was going to harm me or himself. And I saw him pull back from that side and return to a sense of reality and like do that trickster shit that he does. So I have to believe that he got to a place where he was like, here is, in his mind, the you know, quasi-heroic ending. You know, right. he, he, yeah. I mean, he, you know, and he prepared himself and did the sweatshirt right. and the tape and everything. And I think it was his desire to fly, you know, that he jumped out of that window. Five. Yeah. So I have to believe that because I don't, I will never... I could never imagine someone being that smart doing this as a mistake. It just I totally agree with that statement. I feel like people that insinuate that he didn't know what he was doing and that he wasn't of sound sound mind and that he was just high really underestimate how smart he was. He was brilliant. He was a brilliant mind and I feel like this was premeditated on so many levels. Granted, we don't ever know. And these are all assumptions. And this is what we do when in the suicide world is you're always trying to find that peace, you know, but for me, I feel like, and this is again, a reach, I understand. But you know, when he gifted me the Scarlet Witch, I did so much research about her. The Scarlet Witch was a woman who created who was a who could morph reality and she could change the matter in the universe. She could change how you saw things and how you, you envision the world and her children, when her children were taken from her and died, her whole world crumbled. Mm -hmm. And when her whole world traumatically crumbled, she rebuilt a whole new world for herself. Mm -hmm. Woo! I'm going to get emotional talking about this one, but in my intro for my, my memoir, I talk about how, I think my brother saw, cause he lived through my sexual assault. Yeah. He watched me try to take my life and sat there while the ambulance came for me. Mm -hmm. He saw how abusive my mom was to me and how much we fought. Mm -hmm. I think my brother knew that if anybody could whew, recreate her life, it would be me. Mm -hmm. And I think he, he saw it before I did. And I think he knew that if anybody could survive this trauma, it would be me. All of us survived it, but I think he knew that I was going to be able to take it and do something with it. I, I certainly agree. And I also would just uh, mirror back to and reflect back to, uh, you know, and also I will say from myself and with my grief times, I always think, let those tears dry on your cheeks right. because that is nourishment for you. That's like strength for you. That's manna. Um, and 
you not only have rebuilt, but also I know you have been the stalwart for your daughter's career, for your husband's career, for so many people that it, it makes only makes sense that you become that you're this tour de force now. And so I don't think you just built it. You're now like expansive in a way that you could never have imagined. So I say, you know, you're a scarlet witch to the next level. Right. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's not lost on me that I didn't know, you know, I didn't know anything about her. And then when I did research in his death, she created a whole universe called the house of M. Wow. And people call me M now. Like, I just feel like he knew, like Jimmy was so aware. I want to read you the last two paragraphs of this intro because Please. I wrote my introduction. I started this memoir the very first day of quarantine. Wow. And <laughs> now I'm on chapter six of 14 already. And it says at the end, it says the house of M was the universe that Wanda created when her world shattered and she wanted to recreate the things that she loved. It was her way of controlling her life and taking her own power back. My brother saw me as M before I even know who she was. He knew that his death would be a catalyst for almost two decades of tests and trials to come. My brother was one of the brightest, but also most troubled people I've ever known. I truly believe he saw the future and what would happen after his death. He had already witnessed my 20 plus years of turmoil that included drug abuse, surviving a horrible sexual assault, being a young mother, my fight with religion and God, abuse, surviving a horrible sexual assault, and all of our struggles in a dysfunctional Italian family. Jimmy knew that if anyone had the power to withstand the odds and recreate my own universe, it would be me. Little did I know he would be so ever present and that his energy would be constant as I began my journey to not just find myself, but also recreate my universe. Welcome to my journey manifesting House of M. Yeah. That's how the book starts. But I feel like I feel like as I'm writing this, I'm I'm recognizing the fact that he put this into place before I even realized it was gonna happen. Mm -hmm. Is that woo-woo of me to think? No, not at all. I mean, that is his approach towards things. It's you know, he's seeding reality with his ideas and with his intimate you know with his visions and and he just wanted not just the best for you but he wanted to see you flourish as your like most badass self and here we are 2020 and here we are right angela house of m <laughs> uh i like that that's beautiful yeah yeah it's it's been a journey for sure i think that um i want to i mean we could talk for hours about this but i want to close this out with you know, I think I've been, I've been asked if I could go back and say anything to my brother, mm. what would I say to him? Mm. And I, I have answered the question several ways, but I think if I could go back and say anything to him, I would tell him that darkness is okay. Mm -hmm. And that it's not as dangerous as he thinks. Um, I don't think he thought I was dark at all. I don't think he thought I was capable of darkness, but I am. Mm. And I think um, not having that conversation with him that day about my own attempt was a misstep. Um, I can't blame myself and I'm not holding it, but I definitely think uh, if I could go back, I would have that conversation with him. Do I think it would save his life? No. Um, but it would, it would maybe give him a little bit more peace of mind mm -hmm. 
to know that somebody in his family also felt that darkness. What would you say to him? James, you would make an exceptional father. Mm. I would like to see your brother with a baby in his hands. Because he, he played the ukulele, at like kind of like he was cradling a baby. Right. So I would, he I never, would we talked about it, you know. He never thought he was about, uh, good enough to be a father. Yeah. Well, he certainly is. And, you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, he would have been a great family uh, man or, you know, also I just, you know, wish that he could have channeled his lightness more. Uh, yeah. I also think my brother struggled a lot with his sexuality. And I think that, you know, cause in his death, Scott, there were so many lovers that came forward absolutely <laughs> in all corners of like people were like hi i'm his girlfriend hi i'm his boyfriend i'm his girlfriend in peru and i'm like what yes. you are a pimp even in your death and i'm here for it like yeah. i was actually really pleased to know that he did not uh, conform to the you know that he was polyamorous before people were talking about being poly polyamorous you know what i mean yeah Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, he's the first person who brought up homosexuality and, you know, talked through our energy with one another. A lot of people asked us about our dynamic. Um, yeah, he really, he wanted to embody the feminine and the masculine at once. And that you saw that in the way he danced. Right. I don't know if you know the story that when I was living in Monroe, when we were all living in Monroe, he came, he asked me if he could come over one day. He was home from school. He was still at Yale and he came um, and I made him lunch. He only ate meat at my house, even though he was vegetarian. He was like, I want to eat meat at your house. I was like, okay. So I made him dinner or lunch and he came over and he sat at his seat in front of his plate and he started to sob into his food. And I was like, what's going on? And he said, I don't know what I'm feeling emotionally, like who I want to date and like sexually, but I'm, I feel like it's not okay. I feel like dad is not going to be okay with it. And the family is not going to understand. And, you know, I, I didn't realize because he knew that I had dated women in college. I had dated other genders. And so I, he came to me for guidance and I was very, um, I wasn't flippant, but I definitely was like, oh, who gives a fuck? Like, you don't just don't care what they think. And I think he needed more from me at that moment, and I didn't give it to him. But looking back, I think that he really struggled with that side of himself. Jimmy was born, you know, he lived in, like, the era that it wasn't quite cool yet. Mm -hmm. Cool. You know what I mean? It, it, was, it didn't hit mainstream to be queer, to be bisexual, to be pansexual was not a thing when he was a teen. Yeah, absolutely. No, and definitely he's not. Yeah. I mean, and it's tricky, you know, challenging. Here's a incredibly handsome, uh, well composed person who can handle every different setting, but where I think he struggled at times was who, you know, feeling comfortable being attracted to people of all different backgrounds, all different genders. Um, and I don't, I, you know, I can't speak to uh, his experience at the end of his life, but I just, I wish that he saw his, that, that his grace with his body um, as being just like that, that one 
foundation of for who he is and that it didn't matter who he ended up being with i you know it's tough i think the the weight of the expectations of you know his, of his father and the world weighed you know the board there uh it weighed on him certainly and you know i just wish that he could have been as in love at the end as with whomever he was with and with himself you know and that's challenging obviously if you're hating on yourself, you're going to have a tough time being someone's partner. Yeah, that's real. That's real. Um, you guys went to Yale together. You know, he used to call it Dale Yale Community College to me. <laughs> which I drove my dad crazy because of the, you know, surmounting bill yes. that uh, college cost that him. But um, he was like, just writing you from Dale Yale Community College. And I was like, Jimmy, stop. But um, the theater that you guys did there, you know, I never got to see any of it. I never got to see the plays. I've actually done research trying to find recordings of them. Um, the one with the shaved head, with his shaved head. True West, yeah. Yes, I've tried to find that. I tried to find so many pieces. Well, the one piece since you brought up his sexuality and his like birth and awareness of his bisexuality, I think Kiss of the Spider Woman was really the seminal experience for him. It was also just a tremendous performance. It was my favorite performance of his. Really? You know, yeah, it was amazing. Uh, he did it. That show is a two person show with Blake Edwards, and uh, that was fantastic. Um, wow. So if, 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 if that exists, I mean, his director from that show is now a pretty prominent um, producer and director, Maine Wang, so she might have. A video of it as well. Um, oh if you my can gosh. See that. I would love to do research and find that. You know, any I don't know about you, but if anybody ever finds a picture of Jimmy or a video and sends it to me, like earlier you sent me those two songs that I had never heard of you two um, performing together. It's kind of like Christmas for me. It's it's a piece <laughs> of this puzzle that I've never seen, I've never heard, and I was driving in this little car to go listening to his voice and it just made me smile. It was so nice to hear his voice again and see his face kind of in my head because you two are kind of uh, sassy and campy in these songs and I love it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I don't know about you, but I, I find them gifts now. Absolutely. Yeah, it is that. It is like for me, it's a gift, you know, talking about body and, and understanding yourself uh, sexually in terms of connecting with other people when it, it's not every day that I look at my ankle and I say oh there's James but every so often he shows up there or someone will see him there and I'm like that's right mm. he's, he's making sure I'm taking care of myself so uh, I do think of it as a gift and and every so often I go back and listen to some of his tunes which is very nice yeah yeah special. I have, I have some, I have a little box called the Jimmy box and, um, his, I think it was Eileen that brought, uh, CDs to his memorial and, and handed a bunch of CDs out. I actually made those CDs. Yes. Oh, you I, did. Yeah. I, 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 she might have handled them. Yeah. I, I spent a lot of time trying to assemble some, like the greatest hits of sorts. So. Yes. I still listen to that. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Nobody listens to CDs anymore, but it makes me feel old. It's fine. <laughs> Well, um, I feel like, again, I could talk to you for hours, but I don't want to keep people here. Plus, you know, we got to get keep some things for our books, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, but I do want to ask you my uh, 
lightning round questions because I think I'm going to assemble these all together like a James Lipton kind of um, fun piece at some point. Um, what, uh, what's your favorite swear word? Motherfucker. Ah, nice. Okay. Yeah. That's fuck. Some variation of fuck is usually about 90% of the answers I get. So motherfucker. Yeah. That's it's powerful. Sometimes I'll spell F A U C K just for shits and giggles. So, ah, Bowker. Yep. I don't know. But Um, during the quarantine right now, what is your go to either music or uh, like album that you're listening to or book that you're reading that you're like, especially on a day where there's a lot of anxiety that you're like, this, I need to turn this on and turn off the world? Uh, There's a DJ in Berlin, Billy Casso, C A S O. And he has these mixes that are phenomenal, pretty much for every mood and environment. Wow. He's amazing. Uh, a shaman that I spent time with in Norway uh, introduced me to him, and it was pretty. He's been terrific. Uh, he's the, the, down. The, the music I listen to when I'm writing or working. Um, yeah, so I would say that. Um, and in, in terms of a book that I'm turning to a lot, I, I actually did just read this Greek book called Another Life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's by a Greek writer who left um, the island when he was in his late 20s and moved to Sweden and then is coming back in his 70s. And just, I wanted to entertain, you know, we're in quarantine. It's a chance to say, well, what happens if you were throwing yourself into a parallel universe where you had another life? And that's where that that book, I was drawn to it. And it, it, it was definitely... Um, enriching for me to, to not sit with the dread of American quarantine, just, you know, a motherfucker. Right. Right. (laughs) So So if you had to name two people that inspired you to be who you are today, that are not cis white heterosexual men, Mm -hmm. because you know, that you have enough attention, who would they be? Definitely Saban Fusome, may she rest in peace, uh, right. who wrote Spirit of Intimacy and was a West African uh, grief ritualist. And then um, who else would I want to mention? Um, uh, probably, I mean, a writer that I, I've read a lot. I mean, I just wanted to mention her, Sarah Manguso. Uh, mm-hmm. She wrote this book, Guardians and Elegy, about her dear friend who passed of suicide or suicide mm-hmm. by death, death by suicide, excuse me. Um, so she comes to mind. I think she's a brilliant writer. Um, so those are, those are two people. I love I that. Say. I love that. Um, okay. So my last question is if you could have lunch with yourself at another age, what age would you be younger age? Um, what would you tell yourself? And more importantly, what would you eat together? Um, I would like to go out for a bagel brunch with myself uh, around age 12. uh, I remember being at a service, a a Jewish service, and an elderly man came up to me and said, Zaya Mensch, which is Yiddish for basically be a a good man, be a man, Mm -hmm. uh, be a gentleman. And I would just like to share with myself that that is the most important thing you know, you talk about cis white male. If I wanted to tell my 11 year old self, 12 year old self, anything, it's just like, you got to stay the course. You have to be the best man that you can be 
because if you screw up one time or you do anything that just takes you off course, it could be the worst thing ever. Um, mm -hmm. So you just need to be as gentle with yourself and to bring to the world the best of masculinity, the mm -hmm. most earnest masculine self that you could be. That's what I would like to say to my 12-year-old self while eating an everything bagel with locks and cream cheese and capers. Yeah. You know, yes, yes. So. I love that. Yeah. Scott, <laughs> thank you so much for being here, for talking. I know it was a vulnerable topic, but I think that I needed to talk about it. And I feel like, um, yeah, I feel like you were a good person to, to talk to about that. So thank you for being here. Uh, it's, it's amazing to see you thrive like this, Mariangela. Um, where can people that. find you online by the way i'm just i'm on instagram with composter media uh <laughs> but I, I i'd love to meet them in person in real life too yeah so hopefully i can come across them on the street and we can take a james walk a jimmy walk yes. which is a proper meandering flaneur walk anywhere and everywhere at all hours of the night that's how i would love to find people i want you i want to end this podcast with your favorite jimmy story my favorite one was Kowtow Rhapsody. The first time we did it sophomore year at Yale, the 11 o'clock performance, there was one person in the audience, Michael Wyden, who's now a, a pretty successful actor. And James would always go up before the show. We had to put, we started the show with bowling ball bags over our heads. And I took us the seat on the drum set. He picked up his guitar. He came back to me and said, well, Scott, I'm like, how's the, how's the audience looking? He's like, we're, we're looking like one. Like, what do you, what do you mean? He's like, we got one person and Mike Whited. And I'm like, are we going to do the show? What are we going to do? He's like, we're not going to just do it. We're going to blast him. And we just went out there. We like forgot about our places, positions, this, that, whatever. The two of us just beelined and we were just rocking him the whole time, just nonstop throughout the show. And it was just the most remarkable experience I've probably ever had performing. Because I would have not, I would have been like, "This sucks." We only have one person in the audience, and James's <laughs> response was, "Let's do this shit." So I love that. I, I mean, that is who your brother was and and remains in my heart. I love that story so much. I've never heard that. It's it's the best. <laughs> That's so. amazing. Well, thank you again for being here, and um, yeah. yeah, we have a lot to discuss still, but I think that this was such a good start. Yeah. yeah thank you. I really appreciate it, Mariangela, and uh, I wish the best for everyone in the Faces of Fortitude community. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode and all the episodes. We hope you'll join and support us online in the Faces of Fortitude movement on Instagram at Faces of Fortitude, on Facebook at Faces of Fortitude Portraits, and you can find me personally on Twitter at Mariangela Abeo. If you'd like more information about the FACES movement or have an idea for a topic or person you'd like to see on the podcast, please email us at booking at facesoffortitude.com. Until next time, take care of yourselves and those around you. And by that, I mean, wash your fucking hands, wear a damn mask, defund the police, basically continue fighting for the rights of black lives everywhere, especially black trans lives and do your part to abolish all forms of systemic racism. I'll see you next time.